Well, last week we ended with seeing ourselves as evidence that the wisdom and power of God is made known through something as foolish and weak as the cross of Christ. Because we are weak and foolish and he's called us, not those whom the world considers powerful and wise. Well, now Paul uses himself and his ministry as a second piece of evidence. Remember how he asked in chapter 1, was Paul crucified for you or were you baptised in the name of Paul? We saw the temptation to exalt our favourite teachers and leaders almost to saviour status, to think we can receive from them what we can only receive from Christ, atonement for sin. So it was actually Christ who was crucified for us and the gift of the Holy Spirit. So we were baptised into Christ and by Christ. The Corinthians should be able to remember when Paul first came to Corinth with the Gospel. This letter is written only a few years after that event and their experience gives them reason to not trust in Paul but in Christ whom he proclaimed. The Greeks placed high value on oratory skills and the terms he uses here are taken from the vocabulary of the orators. Uh, he uses the term lofty speech and that's about how you present yourself in order to create a good or powerful impression. Uh, it's how you use big words, especially words you know your audience may not understand. So they'll assume you're much more intelligent than they are. It's an approach that's as much uh, about putting on an impressive performance than communicating truth. It's more focused on getting applause at the end than actually serving the people you're speaking to. And he uses the phrase plausible words. Well, that's about using words in clever or even devious ways to persuade people you're right and they're most likely wrong. It's a technique that's often more about winning the argument than actually believing something that you're ready to die for. The Greek orators were performers. They would entertain guests between courses at big banquets and they'd have competitions and they would strive to have the reputation as the best speaker. But when Paul came to Corinth, he was more interested in presenting Christ than presenting himself. Now, there's no doubt Paul was an intelligent and educated man. He was well read in both the scriptures and in Greek literature. We know this because he sometimes quotes Greek poets and writers. And he probably did have good oratory skills. He knew all the tricks. He chose, though, not to use them. Because preaching the gospel wasn't about him, it was about Christ. He knew that the power of the gospel wasn't in how clever he was in presenting but in the power of God that was at work through the word of Christ. In 2 Corinthians, Paul actually quotes what others had said about him in 2 Corinthians 10.10. His letters are weighty and strong but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. Two weeks ago we heard snippets from an early Christian document, the Didache, and there's another document written sometime later, but probably by someone who as a child had seen Paul in person. And it has a description of Paul's physical appearance. 
It says, he was a man of middling size, his hair was scanty, his legs were a little crooked, his knees were projecting, he had large eyes and his eyebrows met and his nose was somewhat long. So Paul didn't have an imposing physical presence. And not only that, he said that he came in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Now this phrase, fear and trembling, uh, appears in Psalm 2 where it says, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. And it's used in Philippians 2.12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. This is a fear and trembling before the Lord. It's a sense of his holiness and majesty and the solemnity of being called into his presence to serve and worship him. It's also used in a different way in Psalm 55. It says, Fear and trembling come upon me and horror overwhelms me. There it's a fear and trembling in the face of enemies who are threatening your life. Now Paul knew the first kind of fear and trembling which is why he'd given up everything to go and proclaim the gospel but he also knew the second type of fear and trembling. See what it says in Acts 18 just after many Corinthians had heard the gospel and believed and were baptised. Acts 18, 9-10 And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision Do not be afraid But go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you for I have many in this city who are my people. Now why would the Lord appear to him and tell him to not be afraid unless he was afraid and he needed reassurance? Before coming to Corinth, Paul had been in prison in Philippi. He had been forced to leave Thessalonica and Berea by an angry mob. Now how would you feel if this had happened to you and then you've come to this new city and the people there had begun to oppose and revile you? Now hearing all this should be of great encouragement to us. We, we may have in our minds a certain image of the great Apostle Paul, the writer of 13 New Testament books, the main human character in the book of Acts, the apostle to the Gentiles who travelled across the known world planting churches. Well, Paul was just a regular person like you and me with the same weaknesses and the same fears. What makes him different to us is simply that he had a unique calling. He was chosen for for this crucial moment in history. But it wasn't because Paul was any better a person than any of us. Even all the preparation that Paul had had in his upbringing and his education, things that God did use, but they were only his because he'd already been chosen before he was born for this task. We've all heard a number of times, and maybe you think too many times, how all Christians are called to proclaim the gospel, not just those who are in ministry jobs, And maybe the seriousness and urgency of that call has been impressed on your heart and maybe you have a genuine desire to see others come to know Christ. But then maybe you've been in the situation where the opportunity and the timing has been right for you to speak but you've been stopped by fear. 
It may be a fear of causing tension in a relationship or spoiling a friendship or fear of the awkwardness and embarrassment of being rejected or ridiculed. Maybe it's a fear that you won't be able to articulate the gospel clearly or if, or if they have hard questions you won't know how to answer them or you'll say something wrong and lead them down the wrong path. Or maybe it's a fear of something greater as our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world face where you might lose family or friends or risk your job or maybe even face physical harm or even death. Well, Paul can identify with you. He knew weakness and fear and trembling so much so that it required a vision of Jesus to reassure him and tell him to go on speaking. And Jesus' words to Paul are also for us. This is Jesus' most often repeated command, do not be afraid. It's the one thing he says over and over to his people as they stand in fear and trembling at both the majesty of his holiness and at the high calling he gives to be his ambassadors in the face of possible suffering. See the reason he gives for keeping on speaking. He says, for I have many in this city who are my people. What does he mean by that? Clearly he's not referring to the Jews as they'd already rejected Paul and if anything they were the ones that Paul was afraid of. And it can't mean that those Corinthians who'd already believed the gospel, Paul already knew about them. I think Jesus here is reminding Paul of Jesus' own words in John 10. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. John 10, 14 to 16. These are the sheep that are not of these fold. These are people who have yet to hear and believe the gospel, but they still belong to Jesus because of election. They're those whom he foreknew and chose and predestined before the foundation of the world. And see how Jesus is very clear that they will listen to my voice. The work of God comes first. The Father foreknows and chooses and the Spirit works in hearts as the word of Christ is proclaimed and only then comes our response in hearing and believing. That's why we can have a confidence in the gospel as the power of God to save because the the result of preaching the gospel isn't dependent on the whims of fickle human beings. The Father's not sitting up in heaven waiting to see whether or not anyone's going to respond to his word. He knows those who are his from the foundation of the world and he's faithful to complete the work that started with his foreknowledge right through to calling us, to redeeming us, adopting us, sanctifying us and ultimately glorifying us as we're transformed into the image of Jesus, his son. The results of speaking the gospel are in God's hands, not ours. We're simply called to not be afraid, to keep on speaking, to know that 
Jesus is with us as he promised and he'll do the work of drawing people to himself. That's why Paul decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He had nothing else to offer. If he'd offered anything else, they would have been tempted to put their faith in him and not in Christ. Now we might ask what he means by a demonstration of the spirit and of power in verse 4. He probably doesn't mean signs and wonders, although the phrase could mean that. There's no record of God doing miracles through Paul at Corinth, although we do know that miracles were taking place in the church at Corinth. But in this context here, he's already made it clear that the power of God to save is primarily seen not in powerful miracles, but in the message of the cross. And the Spirit does the work of taking that message and through it applying the work of Christ to us. He he's the one who opens our eyes to see, who softens our hearts to believe. We might tend to think of conversion, becoming a Christian, as being something rather small, like taking on a new set of beliefs just as we might do if we study a topic at school or uni and gain new information about a certain subject, or we see it as just making a decision to follow Jesus or to ask him into our lives. It's not anywhere as small as that. It's not something that we initiate or make happen. Becoming a Christian requires just as much power as is needed to raise a person from the dead. In Ephesians 1, Paul is praying for the Ephesians and he prays that they would have the eyes of their hearts enlightened, that they may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Ephesians 1, 18-20. See how the immeasurable greatness of God's power is linked to our faith. We believe because this immeasurably great power is at work in us. And the magnitude of that power is seen in the resurrection of Jesus. Now that should be obvious, shouldn't it? Because conversion, becoming a Christian, is actually a resurrection. We were dead in our trespasses and sins and God made us alive by raising us up with Christ. Becoming a believer in Jesus is no small thing. It takes a full demonstration of the Spirit's power working through the message of the cross. So I was, in a sense, wrong to say that there's no record of God doing miracles through Paul in Corinth. He did the greatest miracle of all many times over by bringing the Corinthians from death to life as the Spirit gave them the gift of faith. If you're a believer in Christ, he's done that same miracle in you. Never lose sight of the wonder of God's immeasurably great power that is at work in you It's demonstrated by the fact that you believed in him when you heard the gospel and that each morning 
you wake up and you still believe. It's only the power of God that enables you to believe. Now in verses 6 to 16, Paul picks up on three words that were catchwords in Corinth. Not just for Christians, but for non-Christians, for the Jews and for the pagans. These three words are wisdom, maturity and spiritual you think of it, that's really a summary of a complete person. An authentic human being is someone who is wise, mature and spiritual. That's actually what the Bible calls all believers to aspire to because it's actually a description of the true human being, Jesus, into whose image we're being transformed. If you want to see a wise, mature, spiritual person, just look at Jesus. Now the Corinthians were thinking about these ideas in worldly ways but Paul wants to reclaim them for the gospel. He wants them to start thinking in biblical categories not pagan categories so that in everything they have Christ at the centre of their thinking and as a result at the centre of their living. So wisdom, we've already said a lot about this The world says that wisdom is about being clever, about having insight into great things because you're a great thinker. But biblically, wisdom starts with the fear of the Lord. Wisdom is embodied in Christ and him crucified. We'll see through this letter that Paul keeps calling us back to the cross and what Christ did there when talking about the very practical things of life and faith, how we are to live as wise people. Wisdom is having Christ at the centre of our thinking and our lives. Foolishness is having him at the periphery or not there at all. Then maturity. Maturity is connected to the word for complete or perfect It describes someone who has reached full stature, someone who's moved from childhood to adulthood. Now the world says that maturity is about being able to take on responsibilities of things like marriage and citizenship and business. And in the religion of the time in Corinth, it was also about being able to move away from the physicality of a child to the higher things of intellect and spirit. Well, biblically, maturity is also about moving from childhood to adulthood. But it's marked by what has now come to be known as the bar mitzvah. Uh, It's a Hebrew phrase that means literally son of the commandment. A mature person, biblically, is someone who can read and understand and obey the law of God themselves without having to be taught like a child. In other words, someone whose understanding comes from God and not from human beings. And then spiritual. This is a word that we'll see a lot in 1 Corinthians and was probably out of the three the the one that was most misunderstood by the Corinthians and by people today as well. The world says that being spiritual 
is to have an innate capacity within ourselves to be sensitive to spiritual things or to be good at creativity or someone who is good at relating to people. The pagan religions in Corinth were all about this, about having spiritual experiences in order to progress yourself up the ladder to become more spiritually focused and less physically focused, to become enlightened. Well, biblically, spirituality is about being in relationship with and indwelt by God, the Holy Spirit. It's not about our own capacity to be spiritual, but it's about the Spirit's work in us. So a truly spiritual person is one who walks in step with the Spirit of God, who obeys him instead of obeying the sinful desires of their flesh. So what Paul's doing here is he's taking these words which have been thought about in worldly ways by Christians and he's calling us to see them differently, to see them biblically, to see them Christianly. Do you claim to be a wise, mature and spiritual person? Well, if you're truly these things according to the Bible's definition, then you'll receive the gospel for what it is as the wisdom of God. So see verses 6 and 7. He says, we impart wisdom to mature people. But it's not wisdom as this age or the rulers of this age define it. No, this is a wisdom that comes from God. A wisdom he's kept hidden from the rulers of the age and only made known to us. In verse 8, what's the evidence that the rulers of this age don't have this wisdom? Well, when wisdom personified and embodied in Jesus turned up, they crucified him. This term, rulers of this age, it's referring to both earthly rulers and to the spiritual powers of darkness that are at work alongside and behind earthly rulers. It's humanity under the power of the devil and united in their opposition to God's kingdom. By contrast, Jesus here is called the Lord of Glory. And that's actually a divine title. It's referring to Jesus not just as a glorious king, but as the Lord himself, whose own character defines what glory is. So rebellious humanity shows its foolishness in that it presumes to be able to kill God. And this raises wisdom out of the personal level of my individual life to that of the Father's good plan for the entire creation. This is, this is wisdom that was decreed before the ages and it has the magnificent goal of us sharing in his glory. The world's wisdom will ultimately lead to an opposition to this plan. When God came in person to bring salvation, this humanity who considers themselves wise showed themselves to be fools by killing him. Yet, in the sovereign wisdom of God, which always prevails, even this brutal attack on God himself was foreknown and predetermined and was the means by which salvation was accomplished. 
This, this is the secret and hidden wisdom of God that our minds cannot comprehend or, or come up with something like this. That the Father used the thing that he hated the most, the death of his own beloved Son, to accomplish what he loves, the redemption of his people, of us. Now verse 9 is often quoted out of context to say that there are things about the future in heaven that we won't know until we get there. So we should be happy with not knowing them now. But see in this context it's not saying that at all. It's saying that the wisdom of God that was hidden because it's not possible for the eye or the ear or the heart or the imagination of human beings to work it out or discover it by learning or searching or clever philosophy or religious rituals or obeying the law. This wisdom, something astounding has now happened. Verse 10 says, These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, at present tense. He's not saying there are things that we will never know maybe until we get to heaven. He's saying these things that we cannot know in and of ourselves has been revealed to us. We can and do know what God has prepared for those who love him and it's seen in the cross of Christ. And that's something we'll only be able to comprehend as the spirit enables us to see and believe. As I said, a truly mature person who's someone who is taught by God, who hears and believes and centres their life around the fulfilment of the law in Jesus. And likewise, a spiritual person then is someone who receives the spiritual truths that come from the Holy Spirit in verse 14. Uh, The phrase a natural person here, it means someone who bases their faith on what they experience, whether that's the, the Greek and Roman religions with their religious and ecstatic experiences and the, the pagan religions with their temple prostitutes or the Jews with their focus on doing all that the Lord demanded. Really any, any form of religion where we think we're being spiritual but in reality we're just simply following the desires and the emotions and the personal preferences of our bodies Verse 15 is saying that a truly spiritual person is discerning. They don't go along with the latest trend or they don't believe just anyone who comes and promises something new and appealing and who presents it in a very clever and convincing way so we won over by their methods but not whether what they actually say is true or not. We're told that this person is not judged by others. They're not swayed by people's assessment or impression of them because their identity is in what the Father says about them in Christ, not other people. And so we come to another astounding statement in verse 16. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Now the implied answer is no one. This quote comes from Isaiah 40 in which the Lord declares himself to be so high above his human creatures 
that no one can presume to be his equal or to know his plan from beginning to end. The Jews in exile to whom this was written weren't to try to figure things out but to simply trust that the Lord their God is creator and ruler of all things and so he will be mighty to save them from their enemies. But see here what the Spirit has done for us. He's opened our eyes to see Christ and in the cross of Christ we see the mind of Christ. And by having the mind of Christ, we know the mind of the Father. This is true spiritual wisdom that he's kept hidden from the world and it's been opened up to us. God has opened himself up to us. He's drawn us into his own mind and heart. He's given us insight into things that no creature has any right to inquire about, things that angels long to look into but they'll never fully know because these are things that are reserved for God's children, for us. When we come here each week, it's not about just getting a top up of encouragement to help us get through another week. God is opening up for us the doors of heaven and is inviting us to step in and to see and know his glory. And as we behold his glory in the face of Jesus, we ourselves are transformed to reflect that glory as the immeasurably great power of his spirit is at work in us. We may look just like an ordinary and maybe a bit odd group of people. Sometimes we probably appear a bit conservative and maybe even a bit boring. We meet in this old building. We do things that aren't really that impressive. But in reality, we are citizens of heaven. We're children of the Father. We're a people who are called to be wise and mature and spiritual by having the mind of Christ. Father, we recognise that it's no small thing to be your children, to be ambassadors of your Son, Jesus Christ, to be, to be filled and equipped and sent by your Spirit. It took the death of your own beloved Son to redeem us from sin and it takes the full power of his resurrection to make us your beloved children. What a privilege it is to have your secret and hidden wisdom revealed to us who would otherwise have no right to know. What an honour it is to be given the mind of Christ when we deserve to be nothing but unworthy servants. What a joy is set before us that we know we're destined for glory even though we are dust. We ask that we, your church, might be brought to maturity, to a place where we are taught by you and are not tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Enable us to stand firm on the foundation that is Jesus Christ and him crucified because it's there that we will know your power to save us and keep us from stumbling. Amen.